Okay, welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertz. Adam, it's nice to get a little bit of time off from Trump Jail Watch to do something different. (laughs) (laughs) I I couldn't tear myself away, but I did, so... I mean, when he was the only one saying he was going to go to jail on Tuesday, were, were you really under the impression that this was a thing happening this week? I mean, it's 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 hilarious. Like eight, almost eight years later, people are still, you know, <laughs> following where he leads. It's yeah. It's, yeah, the memes have been great, but oh, then he'll, uh, probably, he'll probably be my ratings are the best ever they've been. I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm all in favor of Donald Trump <laughs> going to jail. I just. I just want to hear that from the prosecutors and not from the accused. I thought he was going to go to Epstein Island, but I guess we should save all these for another day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's a resource-rich environment that uh, we can easily mine another day. Open Sources is CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show, and you can find us every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world, and we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be Ward 2 City Councilor Rodrigo Goller, who is going to speak to us about uh, all the latest issues and ins and outs around housing, including his own experience becoming a landlord and the tiny house he built in his backyard, which was uh, one of the very first wealth controversies of 2023. I can't believe it's March already, or it's almost April, and... We just forgot all about Rodrigo Goller's tiny house. Um, But that's going to be in the back half of the show for the first half. Uh, We are going to focus on one topic. Um, Not necessarily... Well, I was going to say not necessarily timely, but it is sort of timely because this past Sunday marked the 20th anniversary of the beginning of the Iraq War, which uh, surprisingly quiet on the mainstream media coverage front in the US. I haven't seen a lot of retrospective about it this week, which um, I get and I also kind of don't get. I mean, I get it because um, <laughs> the the American mainstream media probably doesn't want to be reminded of its failure in uh, really proctoring that war and, and, you know, drilling down to the fact that uh, certain promises were made and uh and about you know iraq being a clear and present danger and weapons of mass destruction and all that didn't turn out to be the case the press completely missed that story on the other hand uh you know maybe it's not that you know it is i guess kind of surprising because and we'll drill into this a lot hopefully that a lot of the stuff we're dealing with today in terms of especially american foreign policy trust in government uh, trust in the media a lot of that i mean it can't all be traced all the way back to the iraq war but certainly the iraq war was a big sort of flaming signpost on on this road we've been on um in in terms of like just like the, the general betrayal that people have felt um they were ginned up they were told to get mad at iraq iraq had to go saddam hussein had to go and then 20 years later it just uh, we're, we're just completely ignoring the epic scale of what might be the biggest foreign policy blunder of the 21st century, Scotty. Oh, it's up there. It'll be tough to beat for sure. <laughs> yeah. Considering all of the repercussions that and the fallout that came from it, which is still, is it's not, there's no, it's not repaired. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cracks are still wide open, as you mentioned in in the media and people's people's trust in what they hear. But also, there's there's so much to the story, and it is amazing that there hasn't been unless well, if you listen to Democracy Now, like I do, and I, <laughs> lots of people listen to the station do, have given it lots of coverage. Al Jazeera, of course, uh, who who were uh, became quite hated during the uh, Iraq war by the uh, American administration, which is another sidebar to this. There are, it just shoots off in so many directions, but yeah. Mm -hmm. So unlike Afghanistan, there's still a troop presence in Iraq. I think it's something like 2,500 American troops still. Mm -hmm. And a smaller contingent of Canadian troops, actually ostensibly to keep 
things in check. Mm-hmm. They're uh, the the Canadian uh, approaches to train. It's always about training with us, as it is with Ukraine, and that. we're just always. Uh, but of course, the the talk here came back to Jean Chrétien and the Liberal government of the day saying, "No, we're not going to go." Mm-hmm. Canada doesn't want to be involved if the if the UN can't prove that there's weapons of mass destruction there. Security Council doesn't come through, then we're we're not in. Mm-hmm. Which probably did uh, Canada a favor, but at the same time, Canada was still involved. I mean, if we mm-hmm. have troops there now, there's a, there's a level of involvement. Mm-hmm. So th- this is where it comes to f- forgetting about the whole thing, or not completely forgetting about it. It's, it's been it's been sidelined. Considering I still I can't even believe it's twenty years because I was thinking back to let's call it Gulf War One, mm-hmm. uh, which thirty years ago I was kind of conflating the two <laughs> in my mind before I you know did the research and about how the. I remember the anti-war marches for the first Gulf War that shut down University Avenue. But the for the second, well, let's call it the second Gulf War or the the Iraq conflict, the Iraq mm-hmm. War. Mm-hmm. The turnout for that, the resistance for that was huge. This is some of the largest demonstrations the world has seen. In mm-hmm. UK in particular and in America and some in Canada here as well. But yet it's still, you know, you that large and outpouring the people are like, no, don't do it. Don't do this. You don't know for sure that they have weapons of mass destruction. It'll cause more problems. And of course, they did not listen. And now it's all this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it. it what, what's interesting, I think, is the lessons not learned. And you kind of see this with... um with, I mean, I, I was thinking a lot about Abu Ghraib, uh, mm-hmm. especially, you know, that whole port, I mean, it was 2004, it was revealed, I can't remember which outlet um, it broke the story, but that, you know, people were being tortured in this prisoner of war facility, um, in physical torture, sexual torture, <laughs> um, all, all, you know, things like putting bags over people's heads, like sensory deprivation. deprivation i mean it's interesting also to think back like these discussions like well is waterboarding torture and you know most certainly is torture but it was this like weird thing at the time it's like what's torture what's enhanced interrogation um and you know the parsing of these things just incredible but the the main point of abu Ghraib was something like a dozen soldiers were court-martialed and when i say soldiers i mean like non-coms i mean like enlisted people not officers enlisted people there was one person who was like in command authority, the CEO of Abu Ghraib. Actually, she was the CEO of all the te- detention facilities in Iraq, Brigadier General Janice Karpinski. Hmm. Uh, her punishment was that she was reduced in rank to colonel. And to, to, to the best of my knowledge, she you know was able to be honorably discharged from the armed forces as a colonel. And uh, you know, pension attached and intact, and and went about her life. And she has done interviews since then about how she was essentially home to dry, and she almost certainly was. But you know, for one person to get blamed for this act of just systemic torture and brutality and violence, and I, you think to yourself, what does that sound like? Well, we're seeing that right now. All these people who went to the Capitol on January six, you know, regular folks, working class folks who were ginned up by not just Donald Trump, but by people like Ali Alexander and bust in by people like Charlie Kirk. All of these people who are making money hand over butt and are well protected by high-powered friends and lawyers and billionaires. It, it just the, the lessons, you know, 20 years later, um, the little people pay for the mistakes of the powerful. And, you know, you can... I mean, I'm not saying that those people are blameless. I mean, you don't you don't need to be told by you know a reporter that um, you know sticking things into people, if you know what I mean, is bad. Um, but it is interesting that in both these cases, um, we're we're just like, well, we, yeah, you you ran the person from 
Toledo, Ohio, we'll put you in jail for four years. Oh, you who organized this thing? Yeah, we'll we'll get around to prosecuting you eventually, maybe. Um, and, and I mean, that's that's a real thing that that is is still happening. You know, it's 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 disappointing now that I'm talking about it. Yeah, and, and that goes right to the top too. I mean, I remember being yeah. in Toronto, and this was post Bush, but he was there giving a talk. I can't remember who else was there. It may have even been Bush and Blair together mm-hmm. talking about their time. Mm-hmm. And the massive protest and the chant was uh, George Bush war criminal. And of course the police were like dying to crack some heads when they didn't surprisingly, but uh, mm-hmm. it was Toronto, but mm-hmm. yeah. So that's, yeah, that the, the litany of people like uh, Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, all of those names that are now kind of part of the past orchestrating this to promote their business interests, essentially, because mm-hmm. that's really what it was about. That was another side comment about Kretchen saying something about, well, you know, we won't go after so-and-so because that's uh or you won't go after so-and-so because that one's not about oil supposedly like tony blair didn't talk to him for months after that made some kind of public crack about well this this one's about oil so some plain speaking which is also kind of missing in the whole yeah the mess really <laughs> well i mean there, there, there was an incident where uh fleischer who was the press secretary at the time he got up to the podium and he accidentally called it um operation iraqi liberation which uh, oil um, instead of Operation Iraqi <laughs> Freedom, so <laughs> whoops! Someone means test. Someone no. caught that one in time, but uh, unfortunately, sometimes Freudian slips come out. Yeah, and some of the comparisons that have come up too. Like, I don't think it's completely incorrect to compare this to the invasion of Ukraine. No, you've got this completely false pretext. Not it's not to say that Saddam Hussein was not a good person. No, I just have to make that clear like not good at all yeah <laughs> but, not great <laughs> not great but is it is it better to do something to depose somebody like Saddam knowing full well that there was going to be problems in the aftermath mm-hmm. the oh no there weren't going to be any problems I was revisiting some choice quotes and everyone's like oh yeah there's going to be no problems everyone's going to be super glad Saddam's gone and they're just going to like grow this you know uh egalitarian democracy secular democracy just you know it'll just happen dude yeah it's gonna be quick the casualties will be low read it as liberators they were still hanging on to that precision thing from gulf war one it's like you know here is the bomb hitting this specific building and there were no other cat there's no collateral damage lies all Mm -hmm. lies Mm -hmm. because like thousands the estimates are between half a million Mm-hmm. And two million civilians killed since mm-hmm. the beginning of this. Mm-hmm. That's not nothing. Mm-hmm. It's forgotten. It's just you know, the half a million is certainty, but it's, it's they're they're still not sure. Uh, yeah. So it was only going to it only cost X amount of dollars. They put two point nine trillion mm-hmm. into this conflict and the conflict in Syria, mm-hmm. and. You know, plus plus, it's 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 ongoing, and a, a, you know some of that was, a lot of that also came out of having to having to essentially go back or never leave and fight ISIS, which is a creation of this conflict. It yeah. emerged specifically from this, yeah, out of the the devastation, the the mess that was left because it was like, oh, we'll we'll install a democracy, and here's how it will work. And, uh, you know, the Shia and the Sunni and the Kurds and the wall of equal representation, kumbaya. Well, of course, it, it didn't play out that way at all. It just became factional and sectarian and all those things that they were claiming that weren't that you know, weren't going to happen. But that not everyone, but <laughs> the powers that be said that's not going to happen. But then there's the other the other narrative was completely correct. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Just ignored, just completely and summarily ignored, right? So, and still, yeah. e- even still, it's 2023, and it's still about rivalries, about different groups, Shia and Sunni, was al-Sadr versus uh, who, uh, al-Sudan. He got the presidency with, I think it was like 15% of the vote. <laughs> they're not, here's democracy, you do this, but they're, they're not, the, the voting is weighed I, it might even be 50 percent. i might maybe lower than that but it's mm. not very high at all mm-hmm. just because there are so many other problems that people are trying to 
sort out in their lives and they also see government as a corrupt entity which is not incorrect in this in this situation right in this scenario it's like no it was a free-for-all for anyone in the immediate aftermath you know there was this um story about um it was in vanity fair at the time that you know 12 billion dollars in united states cash transported for, directly from the federal reserve to baghdad they think something like nine billion of it went missing so they sent 12 billion dollars in cash to iraq and then lost two you know three quarters of it so you know absolutely there was you know corruption going on and i i don't want to mitigate like the ongoing suffering either because like this statistic shocked me that um nearly 15 percent of um kids born in fallujah um have birth deformities Mm -hmm. and they think that's tied back to you know white phosphorus exposure and depleted uranium shells and all that and you know what what's especially stark is um that percentage is actually greater than the number of deformities in newborns in japan after the two atomic bombs were dropped so i mean what what stuff were they playing with that you know these people who we're not involved in the fighting and it, you know there's stuff like burn pits as well that uh, all that exposure wasn't wasn't immediately covered in the aftermath of of the war either because it's not a, a quote-unquote battle injury you know um to be somewhere where they're burning all these materials because they don't want to pack them up but they don't want the the enemy to get them either so i mean there there's still like long-term health consequences to a lot of this that we still don't fully understand and frankly, that a lot of people are still going to be paying for, including United States citizens, um, because they, they reached that deal last year. Um, I think it was last year, the year before, to uh, fund the healthcare coverage for vets who have injuries due to burn pits. So, I mean, it's yeah, we're talking 20 years later. This is going to be paying for this in 40, at the 40-year 40 anniversary and the 50-year anniversary. Yeah, I mean, the burning of the train in East Palestine is a reflection of this approach and attitude because it's mm-hmm. just let's just get it out of the way we'll, you know, we'll worry about it later mm-hmm. we've made this mess we're just going to clean it up in the absolute worst way possible it's capitalist approach but anyway uh <laughs> don't want to sidebar too much there but yeah this, i mean this this is a nation that brings in it's over i think it's 115 billion a year was mm-hmm. last year's number in oil revenue mm-hmm so it's wealthy. This is, should be the a wealthy, wealthy nation, mm-hmm. and it is. But where does that money go? It's just you were talking about cash disappearing. It's like I, th- I believe their health program is something like okay, there's a, a billion dollars dedicated to health to get health services to the Iraqi people. But then, as that there's there's no trickle down. It's just so many people and so many hands involved in that that they're they're expired medication is common not no access to health services i mean we we complain about health services here but in the scheme of things far Mm. better than there and as you said about the um burn pits and problems from that leftover ordinance is Mm -hmm. there's still there's still you know every once in a while in a place like london they'll find a bomb from the blitz that somehow escaped everything Mm -hmm. it's just such a regular occurrence in iraq and what's what's the, the parallels again to Ukraine? I had heard today or the other day that they, you know, that depleted uranium style ordinance is going to make its way to uh, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I think it's due to the shortages of ammunition that they're having, and it's like mm-hmm. that's that's just a bad idea. Mm-hmm. As because as as you said, and as we know that this the, you know the the fallout from all of this is massive, and they it. You know the the question is you know this i don't know if we'll be having this discussion 20 years from now but it's <laughs> it's not is it going to get worse so there were the um mass protests in 2019 mm-hmm. which was the people finally getting together and saying look you know this has changed something has to change 600 people were killed in that that's the government this supposedly democratic government that's taking care of business mm-hmm. 600 people like mm-hmm. it's it's hard to believe <laughs> but that's it and and then the the, the protests were shut down because of of covid presumably <laughs> yeah. right it's like well it's going you know, we can't no do not don't do this um but that's that's still on simmer too along with every other um 
militia. ISIS is not gone. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, we've defeated ISIS. And, you know, they, they pressed the militias into service, some of them. I guess there's the good and bad militias in the scheme of things to to help with the fight against ISIS, who are also a militia of a sort. Uh, but they're, they're not gone. They're still simmering there. Well, I mean, you know, irritants like Bashar al-Assad, you know, the, the Syrian mm-hmm. civil war seems to have pattered out, but uh, Bashar al-Assad is still in charge of Syria. There's nothing to say that in five years there could be a new Syrian civil war to, to finish the job. And a lot of that destabilization began with Iraq and, you know, began with the, the presumption, oh, we'll take Iraq off the board, we'll get rid of Saddam Hussein, and people are going to see how wicked awesome freedom is, and they're, it's going to grow, and for... A while there in the Arab Spring, that seemed like something that might actually happen, but then it quickly turned sour because you don't get um, ISIS without the destabilization of the Arab Spring either. So um, even even when it looked like the Bush doctrine was finally going to pay off, it you know it, it ended turned into disaster. Like I was, the funny part is I've been reviewing a lot of comments made by people who are both anti-war and pro-war, and there are a lot of people. Uh, in the Canadian media, who got it wrong? People like Andrew Coyne. Oh yeah. Um, and it was all kind of on the basis of like, look, the U.S. is going to war. We should go to war too, guys. We want to be good friends. That was literally like Christine Blatchford's argument was like, you know, let's be good friends with the U.S. because they're going to war, and we should go to war too. I mean, it's oh, some of the some of the worst of the worst, like real beauties like John Kay and Margaret oh. Wendt, they were all in favor of it too. And so it's, you know, every post, every paper that we now consider post media was, um, was pulling for, for going to war too. And I mean, yeah, we were kind of, we, we dipped our toe into Iraq. Sure. But I mean, that was a tough, I, I think people under appreciate what a tough call that was for Kretchen. And I think he was probably anti-war the whole time, but I mean, he he was a shrewd enough operator to know that was that could have been something that could have gone very, very differently too. And I want to point out too, nobody really started questioning the failures in Iraq until a woman named Cindy Sheehan mm. started going, went to Crawford, Texas, uh, in the summer of two thousand and four, and then stood outside the Bush Ranch with a sign. It was a one-woman protest, and her question was simple. I want to know why my son is dead. Yep. Uh, her son, Casey, um, he was uh, an enlist. He enlisted in the army in 2000. Um, he was going to get out in 2003, but then he saw that his, his unit was going to be sent to Iraq. So he reenlisted because he wanted to go with his unit. He wanted to go with his brothers in arms. Um, he was a hero. Um, he tried to rescue uh, soldiers in the siege, uh, the siege of Satin City. Um, which was a brutal battle, and he was killed in action. And then, you know, a year later, well, I, I guess it was maybe six months after the battle, but still, like, no WMD. Uh, they barely caught Saddam, but there's no democracy taking root there. They didn't find the connections with Al-Qaeda. George Bush is cracking wise about it at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Hey, yeah, we're still looking for those weapons of mass destruction. Yuck, 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 yuck. And she's like, my son is dead why is my son dead when all the justifications that you said that to send him into war have come up short and then people started asking the question yeah what about those wmd what about you know we'll be greeted as liberators you know and it's like it was a small scale protest the press only took note of those of her because it was like summer vacation um, and it was Crawford, Texas, and what else is there to do but to talk to this one protester? But, yeah. um, but I mean, that's how the, the 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 story started changing. And I and I, the thing I keep thinking about is that Cindy Sheehan, wherever she is, doesn't have that answer because they didn't hold them to account. And we're now going into another presidential cycle. And this was in the news this past week's. Uh, I can't remember. I think it was Vanity Fair again. But somebody interviewed a detainee from guantanamo bay and they had some pretty horrific stories about force feeding about how they went on uh hunger strike about the uh about the conditions there and who was uh one of the lawyers assigned to oversee detainees at guantanamo bay in the mid 2000s it was a man named ron DeSantis, who is currently the governor of florida and the presumptive republican nominee for president overseeing 
allegedly the force feeding of prisoners on a hunger strike at Gitmo. So you know what? If we think this is over and done with, uh, I can't wait for the middle of the presidential primary when uh, somebody when somebody from the Washington Post gets 20 people from Gitmo on the record to talk about what DeSantis did for the year he was at Gitmo. Oh, it's good that that's leaking out. I had no idea. But that's... Yeah. Yeah, the, the the players are the same, right? A lot yeah. of them are still around, whether they're in front of the camera or behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. What you're mentioning there about the the Canadian media media beating the drums. Mm-hmm. I think it was only the Toronto Star that yeah. came out against it. I'm not yeah. sure if they they would now in similar circumstances, but mm-hmm. they have a they have a certain amount of editorial independence that doesn't go with the the larger yeah because it was everyone and but and in this you know i saw the same thing in the u.s particularly with the new york times famously mm-hmm. who had to publish a mia culpa saying no 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 there was actually no weapons of mass disruption sometimes in the same paper they were printing contradictory things about mm-hmm. it's oh no there's weapons of mass destruction them and but then there'll be another article deeper in the paper when it was the paper will be like, no, wait a minute. It's no, that, that didn't actually happen. This isn't going on. No, no, no. And uh, yeah, that's, I don't, I think that was the beginning of the decline, or at least the, you talked about it off the top about how the cra- the cracks were appearing. Yeah. Combining that with the rise of the internet mm-hmm. was it not, you know, the times is still with us. It wasn't the death knell for it, but things definitely changed. The tone changed. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the amount of, you know, couple that with conspiratorial th- uh, thinking that came out of 9-11 itself. Right. But, you know, we, we see that writ large when it's, you know, and all things Trump, uh, COVID, you name it. It's just that that has yeah um, become so dominant now that we can't escape it. And some of that is technology, but also some of that is and people rightly so were skeptical of the mainstream media after finding out that they were effectively lying to them. Trust is such a you fragile know. thing. It, oh yeah. It, and it's, you know, there are still there. I mean, there are still people on cable news who were on the air during Iraq um, who were totally getting it wrong and whose idea of covering the war was to ha- have an anti-war person and a pro-war person fight each other for five minutes and then go to commercial. Mm-hmm. And there, and some of those people are still on the air. And and you're right. It just you know, there's this thing in the back of your head. Even if you're not a conspiratorial person, it's like, well, how am I supposed to trust you, given that you got this maybe the most important story of the 21st century so wrong? How am I supposed to trust you now? And nobody seems to be to want to even think about the question, let alone answer it. Yeah, it, it is this weird, you know, it's, I don't trust you because I'm a conspiracy person, but also there was an actual conspiracy yeah. with the media that we should be listening to, but we're not going to because they got it so wrong. So it's, it's, it's a, a lose lose or should be, but the media keeps rolling on because a lot of this, you know, we're, we're talking about it, but as you said, it's, it's, it's kind of forgotten the the depths of this, how, how, how deep everything went yeah, uh, and is, is still going so but it's, yeah, I don't, I don't, the, the media is never, I don't think, at least in the U.S. at least, not bounced back. Mm. Yeah. Well, we certainly haven't forgotten it. And uh, if no one else is talking about it at 25, we will, if we're still around, we'll, we'll shed some light. Don't worry. Anyway. I'll give us five uh, years for sure. Yeah. It was <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break and then come back with our interview with Rodrigo Guller. You're listening to Open Sources Guelph. You're on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. Hazy afternoon, sunshine here in beautiful Wasega Beach. You're listening to UFO Radio, 1150 AM. Here's a groovy, fab new tune by the foreign films, Daydream in the Sun. Daydream. You're my summer
And that was the foreign films from their album Magic Shadows. The song is Daydream in the Sun, UFO Radio. <laughs> I like the little radio bit off the top there, which <laughs> anything anything with radios in it, we will play it. So we we, we have a small area of interest in its radio. Radios and movies, right? Magic Shadows. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's niche eh? that's magic is like i can hear that music in my head but i'm of a certain age though kids it's all niche um these days and i think that's i was trying to make a joke but i think that's a true statement anyway yeah. um <laughs> last week i caught up with rodrigo Goller, who's war two city councilor uh we talked a lot about housing that seems to be the point of common interest for everyone these days affordable housing available housing and uh so rodrigo has that experience now both as a city councilor and as a landlord as i said at the top of the show so we talked a little bit about trying to uh find a renter for his tiny house and a little bit about that controversy and then some of the stuff going on at the city whether that's um the housing pledge that the province made city council sign and you know the the risk to people on 90 carden uh, now that that building's been sold. So there's a lot of ground to cover. So I'll just, uh, we'll get started here and uh, throw it to the interview I did with Rodrigo Collar. And that's going to start right this second now. <clears throat> Rodrigo Collar, thank you so much for hopping on with us today. Thanks for having me, Adam. Glad to be here. Great. Um, I thought I'd start here. Uh, <laughs> you kind of started off the year uh, by trying to do something for the housing situation yourself. You You built a little tiny home in your backyard and uh caused a surprising amount of controversy uh, have you have you been able to rent that out is is that uh being homed right now absolutely absolutely it was uh it took about two weeks to to find uh, a tenant for the space uh, we um we actually had a, a student who uh, had their their house had flooded over the over the holidays, so oh, no so way. we we rented it to to them for the month of January while their their landlord who still had you know at least with them lined something up for February first, uh, and then we found um, tenants um, two students who will be moving in May first, uh, and then we've actually filled in uh, February, March, and April with other folks that are, uh, just looking for shorter term accommodation, not through Airbnb, just like a monthly rental. Um, um, one, one family, they were going to move in somewhere February 1st, but it turns out that their place wasn't ready. So (laughs) they were here for the month of February. And then for March, we have another couple that was just looking for two months. Um, so yeah, they, they, there is, there's a high need for housing, and I think one of the solutions that that has been pointed out is are these additional dwelling units, whether it is uh, in the, a basement unit, a backyard unit, like like we have in our in our backyard, um, and um, and I'm I'm hopeful that we'll see see more of these units to just increase the supply without significantly changing the the shape and uh, and the feel of our neighborhoods. I think mm-hmm. there is a concern that because we have to fit in. Uh, 65,000 people in in the city of Guelph, and about 30,000 of those are going to be in the uh, in the greenfield areas, like Claire Maltby, uh, the former Dolan Quarry that's going to become housing, um, maybe the um, um, innovation district if uh, if if the province uh, get, get, gets around to 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 giving those lands out, uh, they they will accommodate about half of them. Half has to come into the built-up area. And that either means a whole bunch of tall buildings or a whole bunch of, of three and four story um, low low rise buildings. Uh, and that really changes the feel of neighborhoods. The alternative is to have more triplex, fourplex, fiveplex units that, that still feel and look like um, like a residential neighborhoods. Um, that, and then that just requires everyone to, to um, build a little more density on the streets without significantly changing the city but i mean there's something here too you know you um you've rented essentially your tiny house out four times in four months uh to people with different needs and you know there is that need for sort of flex accommodations too you know i need to i need somewhere to pop my tent for you know a couple of weeks because my house is flooded or i'm waiting to move into this other place you know there are a myriad of different housing needs going on too yeah, and and you know 
council is is going to be to be looking at um, licensing of short term rental housing, mm-hmm. um, and I, I I'm really I'm really hopeful that we will uh, abide by the staff recommendation that we allow for uh, your your property plus one other property in the city uh, limited to people that live in Guelph as the folks that are doing the the, the, the renting. Um, and I think that primarily responds to, you know, staff found out that it's not this, you know, the, the story that we think that mm. it's primarily folks that have two, three or four homes that rent them out through short-term rentals. We're finding out that it's large property owners that are mm-hmm. buying 15, 20, 30 homes in every city and then putting those as Airbnb. So then the, the proceeds and the benefit flows out of the city into into those 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 pockets. So the limit is able to spread it out more locally. Um, and also it, it doesn't take it away from long-term rental. And, you know, the example with my backyard, even though it was available for, for uh, a few months, you know, I could have put it in the market for Airbnb, charge possibly more but i think the 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 better thing is to maintain it as long-term rental even you know on a month to month basis uh it is still more affordable for the folks that are looking for for somewhere to rent um yeah yeah some of the people that 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 were were looking at the place they're paying 80 90 bucks per night uh in airbnb while they look for for somewhere else so there's certainly the need um, and we need we need all all hands on board to actually scale up the the number of units that are being built here. I did want to ask about all hands because here you are sort of taking on something you could do as a, as a counselor, I guess, as a homeowner in the city. You were able to add to your property and and help address and and you know in the small way that you could to the housing crisis. What have you learned then from your own experience that you know maybe you'd be able to apply. On a broader level, about you know, yeah. be, you know, providing this kind of accommodation. Yeah, and, and yeah. So just to be clear, I, I did that as a as a private home owner here mm-hmm. here in Guelph that had a, a backyard that we that we wanted to share. Um, I, I think as a as any any Guelph resident that has the space in their home or in their backyard, um, you can you can add um, a rental unit to your property. Uh, that will contribute to you know the, the long term um, payment of you know of your bills. Uh, the the property value increases, but but it is it is an investment now for benefit later. You know mm-hmm. we're looking at a thirty plus year payback on our investment, um, and you know some of the negative comments on social media said, well, the math says you're you're going to be making half a million out of this, and it's like well. Or my bank is making half a million out of this, <laughs> you know, with the interest rate. Uh, you know, we we don't see a penny from it for for the next thirty years. Sure, that the renters are paying the the cost of building plus the cost of maintaining that. You know, the, the additional debt that, that 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 we took out to build this unit. Um, but really, the the market will dictate what is charged um, with with these properties, um, and I think there is a difference between uh, between charging market rent and and then allowing for large corporations to to invest and 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 buy a large number of units. But to to your question, what we learned is that uh, there's still a lot of um, misinformation uh, about mm. the quality of life that that people have and the amount of space that is needed. Mm -hmm. Uh, The unit that I built in the backyard is 520 square feet, which Mm -hmm. by the standards of a house, it is is very small compared to what we're used to here. But when you think about it as a small apartment, um, you know, and and for folks that have lived in in larger, denser cities, that is not, not, not unreasonable. Um, and and the folks that we've had, we we built it thinking of university students uh, because we have such a large influx uh, of, of students needing housing. Um, that uh, you know, when I think about what we have versus a university dorm, it's actually a little more spacious and, and yeah. more comfortable than that. So that that is you know, I think we have to adjust our expectations of of what um, w- what are appropriate living spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Uh, I remember when I moved back to Guelph from uh, from, uh, from I was lived in Toronto for a few years after after high school here in Guelph, uh, and after finished university uh, here in Guelph, um, and I was living on a house on Elizabeth Street right across from the uh, Red Chevron Club, mm-hmm. uh, and it was you know four of us were were sharing the the basement, and there was another three folks upstairs, so so seven seven people in a in a legal rental unit, very well maintained. But uh, those are small spaces, uh, yeah. and I think we just have to realize that a, a lot of people are comfortable, uh, depending on your your life situation, um, with uh, with less space. Um, so we have to we have to terms come to terms with that. Um, that uh, depending on where people are uh, and their life circumstances, uh, what we're used to seeing homes that are you know a thousand. 1,200, 1,600, 2,000 square feet uh, are no longer uh, needed, and, and we may not need more of those. Um, talking to many people at the door, I spoke with many senior citizens uh, who are looking to downsize their homes, right. but there's nothing available uh, in the size that they're looking for in their neighborhoods, so then they stay overhoused uh, to be able to stay in the community. Um, so I think we we do need to be looking at more triplex, fourplex, fiveplexes, small apartment units that can accommodate people who want to downsize, but in the same neighborhoods. So you can maintain your, your you know, stay close to family and friends. Um, so that's that's what I'm hoping to see. And, and that's what I'm hoping that the shift is in in what people are looking for and what they're, um, what they're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. There was a, a proposal like this at committee of adjustment last week and um I, I think i can say modestly it was like what the most controversial bid on there it was it's a pretty big fairly large property i don't think no it's not in your area i think it's technically ward five but it's it's a fairly large property there's a big house on it they need to take out a, an oil tank that's under the garage mm-hmm. um which means taking down the house and instead of rebuilding that big house they want to build split it into three lots and have three smaller houses on it and of course, if you're if you're and this is get, kind of gets into the NIMBY issue, and I think Cam was talking about this at the State of the City that you know not every development is going to decimate the character of your neighborhood, but I think every neighborhood where something like this happens, people feel that. Yeah, and I I, I think there's just there's a there's a there's a psychology here that we have to kind of overcome, right? Absolutely, and I think that the the minimum width is is something like what. 13, 12 and a half meters. And, mm. and this was going to be, and I, I had a letter from a constituent saying that this was, uh, it was a letter from someone in the old university uh, residents association. Right. And th- th- this was the third time that an application had come in with, with reduced um, minimum widths for the lot. Uh, and I'm thinking, actually, my my home that that I that I live in, it was built in, you know, 1904, turn of the century. And our f- our, our frontage is less than the minimum that is allowed now. Right. We live very comfortably. It's a single <laughs> detached house. It's small, but it's in the the character of of this street that I live in. Uh, but it's just it's not as wide as we now have in our in our guidelines. So mm. I think it's it's worth revisiting. Uh, and then the other question that I have is if they're splitting it into three separate units, uh, three separate properties. Would there be consideration to have, you know, would it be better for the neighborhood if it was uh, a fourplex that was built together as one unit mm. with four separate entrances, mm. um, you know, and, and what is more more cohesive to the neighborhood, having multifamily units that are built together that allow for more green space or having individual smaller detached units that are less energy efficient that will pave over more green space um and uh you know, so that that's one of the questions that i think we need to shift towards um, right. and that's where uh, i'm really hopeful that we will have more more of an emphasis on 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 multi-family buildings because they allow for more green space to to be left uh, unpaved right i i think and cam took some share of not, not that I'm asking you to respond to everything Cam says, but Cam took some share of, you know, uh, at sniping when he, you know, at the state of the city said, well, we really need to get over like coming to planning meetings and saying it's going to affect traffic. It's going to affect this. It's going to affect that kind of like the, the typical things that always come up on a planning meeting. We saw that 
whenever we had the last planning meeting back last month um, about that. I mean, and granted, in that instance, it was it's like a twenty, it was a twenty three story tower that came forward. So I understand a lot of people uh, choking up a bit when, mm-hmm. when that comes yeah. forward. But we do kind of get those same litany of complaints uh, every time a proposal comes forward, no matter what the development is, no matter where it goes. And I just like, is there a way where we can? And maybe it's on the developer to do more engagement. Um, or on the city to do more engagement or something. But is there something we can do to sort of like, I guess, cut those kind of recurring complaints off at the past so we can just get to the business of building stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think that's that goes back to the, 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 the hope that we have that our neighborhoods are not going to change significantly and they're, we're going to maintain the, the look and feel of the neighborhoods. But when developments like like the one at 58 Wellington come forward that are are significantly different than what is there, we say, well, this development is really going to change things. What we're not taking into account is that the secondary plan for the downtown allows for a row of 18-story buildings on that section um, between, um, what is that, Gordon still, between Gordon mm. and, and Wellington. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we don't have a clear picture is, is once that is fully built out, so mm. 2051, that is now a row of 18-story buildings, say, um, and the rest of downtown has been built out to the maximum of you know 18 stories. Behind that, it'd be eight stories. It would be 14 stories uh, in front of, you know, the, the uh, I guess, around the, uh, the Baker Street, uh, development. Right. So once that is built out, what will li- that look like? And I think we need to start thinking about that future state. And when we get there, uh, what does our community look like? What does traffic flow look like? Because this one at a time approach is not working. Um, yeah. it, it, it means that we're looking at each development individually, not fully understanding how it's going to change you know, those studies, they do the study of the traffic patterns of water use of, of, you know, foot traffic of the existing situation plus one building. But in reality, what is allowed is for, you know, two dozen other buildings uh, like it or a little bit lower or a little bit higher in the neighborhood. Um, and I think that's what we need to be looking at. And once we have that picture that downtown wealth will, you know, have 10 times the population it has now uh, or more then it really brings to mind that oh yeah we really need to get the the wellington park built we really need to make sure that we're putting money aside so that the site that has you know the angel's diner the the barber shop there so that we have plans for that to actually make it a park because it is in the downtown secondary plan but we don't have any any money allocated for it yet and with the cuts in development fees realistically, if we're just collecting development fees and parkland dedication for that, we're never going to get to the amount of money that we need to turn that into a park. So uh, I'm really hoping that with our um, planning uh, team, the next time that they do a, a growth report for the city, they and they do that on an annual basis. They tell us, you know, how we're doing, how many units have been built, how are we doing in our targets for uh, rental units versus um, um, family homes and and the different sizes. I'm really hoping that they give us a better idea of what those secondary plans feel and look like on build out. And then instead of having the conversation every time an application comes forward, we can have that conversation as a whole and say, maybe we really shouldn't be allowing 18 stories here. Maybe we should have could have put a cap of six stories. That's, I mean, that's the real thing, right? It's just um, when these things come up at a planning meeting, and and people are like, "Well, what is this going to look like when we get to the third twenty-story building or the fourth? And and you have to say, "Well, hold on, that's not the point of the planning meeting because we t- it, we're talking about this very specific <laughs> application." But there's also at the same time no point to talk about the bigger picture, like how what what will this like, you know square mile area look like in 10 years if all this stuff that's being proposed and you know we see that a lot and again this isn't your area but we see that a lot in gordon street around uh mm-hmm. courtright narkel and 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 on these areas where there's a lot of intensification going on yeah yeah and and that's where so for example in that area where we allow a maximum of six stories and now we've had a couple of eight stories or or more being approved the when they do the traffic studies, they do the traffic studies for what is today plus that. And I'm thinking, I would love to see the traffic studies for when this is all 
a series of six stories from, I don't know, Corwright to, to, to Moldby Road. Um, and then you add two or three or, or, or 10% that are eight, eight or nine or 10 stories. How does that change traffic patterns? So I think that is what we need to be doing um, rather than just you know, lo- looking at uh, applications individually. I think it's not overly helpful and it doesn't give us a realistic view of what it's going to look uh, when it's all built out. I want to look at this a different way. And this has come up all about housing and a whole list of other issues, but this this is what happens sometimes. Um, I was at the housing symposium that was part of the, the Rebel Symposium a couple of weeks ago, and there were people there who have experienced living with homelessness and, and, work, and working alongside people with homelessness. They see a lot of the stuff that happens at city council. They read about it, and they kind of have doubts. So, I mean, in terms of reaching the people we really want to help, on this issue, how do we do that? Because they're they're seeing the results, but they're not kind of like feeling the results, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, that that that's an excellent point, um, and I think that the, the we are certainly not doing enough, um, and that is that is what I wanted to talk about uh, with you today. The reality is that we have a number of people in Guelph, maybe say half a percent of the population or, or maybe a third of a percent who are experiencing homelessness, who are out on the streets. We have not built social housing and in, the, in the last you know, like 15, 18 years. Um, and I'm talking about rent gear to income housing and government subsidized housing uh, in, the city, in the city of Guelph. Um, and that is, that is a problem. Um, Guelph City Council has been playing this game of it's not my responsibility it's Wellington County that's responsible and Wellington County says rightfully we manage your housing we we manage what is built but it's up to Guelph City Council to put money aside to build more uh, social housing so that is one of the big discrepancies and in this last budget we we managed to put aside uh, a bunch of money that is going to go to providing a report on on responsibilities and need. So my hope is that later this year, around June, July, we have the, the results of that. And it actually tells us, City of Guelph, you know, you're short by X number of, of uh, rental units. You're short by X number of affordable housing units. You're short by X number of uh, government subsidized housing, rent gear to income housing units, um, and and that is what we need, so that we have a target and we know what we need to work towards. Uh, when when I first got elected to city council, there was you know in 2018 there was zero dollars put towards the affordable housing reserve, and you know there were other priorities that seemed to to be more important at the time, um, and I think that speaks to who sits around council. Um, you know, largely uh, folks that are have done fairly well, retirees, um, and and we have uh, not many people that have experienced uh, poverty or or or, or wanting uh, during their during during their life. So that that is something that I'm, I'm keenly aware of. Uh, I have never experienced homelessness, th- thankfully, but uh, but you know we. When we first came to the country, many of our Christmases came from the Salvation Army bins that that we would get <laughs> a couple of toys, and you know for for a while there, while my my parents were getting their feet on the ground, we had to access food banks. So I I understand what what it's like to be food insecure uh, for, for 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 portions, and I'm I'm aware that we are certainly not doing enough. So right. in, in my mind, the city of Guelph needs to set targets for the number of needs new rent gear to income housing units that we need to build and we need to start putting that money aside. Um, we have, you know, about 130, 150 folks who are experiencing homelessness in the city right now. Uh, many of those folks are housed at the Holiday Inn um, through one of the, the emergency shelters. That is going to be developed this year. So that's not going to be available. And I'm not sure whether Wellington County will be able to find another location uh, for for emergency uh, shelter space. Uh, we also have other properties that are currently providing um, 
low income uh, affordable housing and you know those some of those are going to be developed uh, and we're going to see more people uh, who are not able to find uh, a place they can afford uh, and we don't have a plan in place uh, to deal with that so that is something that over the next couple of months I'm I'm really really uh, going to be pushing for uh, for us to have targets and to have um, clear goals on meeting that need. Uh, because housing is the responsibility of municipalities. We pay for the social housing that we do have, and Guelph City Council needs to step up and put money aside to build more social housing uh, because the city has been growing. You know, l- like it, like it or, or not, uh, we have gone grown significantly in the last 20, 30, 40 years, um, but the number of rental units, affordable housing, social housing has not kept pace with that growth. Mm. So there is this widening gap. Um, and as we get two-way, all-way train coming from the, the, the GTA, we are going to have more folks that move out of the city, move to Guelph because it's easier to go to work in Toronto. As we have more remote working options, we're going to have more people moving here. It is, it is a, a beautiful city. We're one of the few cities um, that has maintained their pledge to increase their tree canopy. And I'm excited that we're, we're doing that, that we still have plans uh, to grow to a 40% tree canopy. Even if it takes you know, the, the next 50 years to do, we're still on track. And there is many reasons why Guelph is a very attractive place to live. That does mean that people move here and they displace affordable housing options. So I think it's because we have uh, a growing community, uh, we have to put the money down and we have to put money to build affordable and rent geared to income housing. So I think that's where Guelph City Council has been falling short. And that's Mm. what I think needs to be one of the priorities. Um, As part of the strategic planning that the city is doing, we are are putting together a plan for the priorities for the city, uh, and that is going to inform the next multi-year budget. That's going to be the 2024 to 2027 multi-year budget. Uh, I think that housing needs to take a top spot in that process. It has not been a top priority up to now. Uh, we've only been putting aside $500,000 per year towards our affordable housing reserve. Um, and and I'm, I'm afraid that that is not enough to close the gap that has been growing. Uh, before we wrap up, I just want to point out, you know, June, July, that's probably about the time we're going to start seeing people leaving 90 Cardin as well. And if there's like a group of people in Guelph who will almost definitely have nowhere else to go, it's the people who live in that building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and we need to have a solution for that. We we can't just sit back and 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 say that we're not responsible. Say that the province should be doing more, because sure they should be doing more. Yeah. But but unless the province steps up, and maybe this government will not be stepping up. Who knows? Maybe they will. But so far, there's been no indications that homelessness and poverty elimination is is a priority for them. Um, so I think we are either going to pay for the policing service, the paramedic services, the hospital services to take care of a population that really needs to be housed, uh, or we're going to spend that same money in building that housing on um, on, on a permanent basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people would know what they would probably rather do with that money, but uh, we'll have to leave it there for now. Rodrigo Goller, thank you so much for all your time today. Thank you, Adam. Great speaking with you. Okay, and once again, that was Rodrigo Guller, Ward 2 City Councilor, and uh, the housing debate will continue. Till the end of time, till the ends (laughs) of the earth, until you stop covering City Hall. (laughs) Which is never. (laughs) Forgot till the end of the city limits, although some people wouldn't mind us uh, getting getting some, we need breathing room. Don't let the sun set on you in this town. (laughs) <laughs> the sun will never set on the Guelph Empire. <laughs> uh, okay, that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. You can stay connected to us at our website, opensourcesguelph.com. You can find us on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire, and we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. If you'd like to listen to this show again or any of our shows, you can download it from our website every Monday at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or on your favorite podcast app, which includes Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. 
You can find me personally at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, or check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Twitter, and Mastodon. And if you're listening to us on the FM at our normal time, stay tuned for Turtle Island Underground and Ramadan Mubarak to our friends who observe that. Yes, good good catch. And uh, Turtle Island Underground is one of the several great programs that you will find here on CFRU 93.3 FM cfru.ca guelph campus and community radio we shall return next thursday at 5 p.m for a brand spanking new edition of open sources and we will see you then